Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. You're listening to Griefcast with me, Carrie Adloyd. How do we grieve for someone? How does it change and evolve as we get older? My dad died when I was 15 and it took me many, many years to be able to express what I had gone through. So I decided to create Griefcast, a chance to talk, share and laugh about the weirdness of grief and death. But with comedians, so it's not that depressing, I promise. Each time I talk to a different comedian about their own personal experience of grief, as we remember someone that they have lost along the way. Whether it was a long time ago or you've just joined the club, this is a chance to talk about the peculiar human process of death. Welcome to Griefcast. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavourless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well... HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is PlushCare. PlushCare is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. 
For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. Hey, Greasters. Hope you're okay. And at least the football has been cheering you on this week if you are supporting England or Sweden today. Just to remind you, we have a live event coming up on the 15th of September as part of the London Podcast Festival. I'll be talking grief, funeral music and wake canapes with Andrew Hunter-Murray from the hilarious No Such Thing as a Fish podcast and also by Erin Gibson, who hosts the incredible Throwing Shade podcast all the way from the Americas. If you head to the King's Place website, you can find all the details of the festival and book tickets as well. This week, I'm joined by actor and writer Rebecca Payton. Rebecca has been seen in EastEnders, Casualty, and she wrote and performed her one-woman show, Sometimes I Laugh Like My Sister, which she's performed all over the world. Rebecca came in to talk to me about her dad, who died in a cycling accident when she was six years old, and her sister Kate, who was killed whilst working as a journalist in Somalia in 2005. This conversation was recorded before the horrific shootings at the Capitol Gazette in Maryland and is dedicated to the journalists who were killed in that incident. Gerald Fishman, Rob Hyson, John McNamara, Rebecca Smith and Wendy Winters. And as Rebecca says in her talk, sadly journalists are under threat all over the world every single day, so I'd also like to dedicate it to Ibrahim Al-Munja in Syria, Shujat Bakari in India, Paul Rivas Bravo in Colombia, Mohammed Al Qadazi in Yemen, and Nauras Ali Rajabi in Afghanistan, who also died simply doing their job this year. Welcome to Griefcast. I'm here today with actor and writer Rebecca Payton. Hello there. Hello. Um, we were just talking before we started recording. I have had so many people say to me, You should get Rebecca Payton on. And you have equally had people say, you should listen to grief cars. So, um, because we've both been, what is it, the grief industry? What do yeah, we think? I think that's what it is, man. Yeah. I think it's the, it's the um, I was having, uh, working this weekend with a friend and, and somebody, we were talking about loss and grief and our colleague just went, yeah, you're the grief police. <laughs> the grief police. And I, I quite like, like grief police. So I think, I'm like, hey, yeah. we should do something. We should do a show. The grief yeah, police. The grief I like police. it. That's really because nice. Because there is a lot about policing grief in life. Yeah. Including from people like me who are like, Hmm, you ain't had no murder, you ain't had no grief, get not it. I yeah, mean, that's yeah. not how I do think. But I think people sometimes feel that, like, oh, I'm really sad about something. I'm like, that's okay. You've had something awful happen to you. It doesn't have to be as glamorous as my no. losses, darling. <laughs> you can have your losses and they're awful as well. You know, there's no, there isn't a hierarchy. Yeah, there hierarchy but there is, and then there are people who want to police how you grieve. Yeah, and I'm yeah. like, the grief police is something you can't have that idea. Ladies and gentlemen, <laughs> yeah, yeah, that was my it's idea. Well, idea. it was actually Mark's idea, but hey, Mark. Um, coming to Edinburgh next year, Rebecca's show, Grief Police. <laughs> so we've already paid for the brochure, so it doesn't. You can't do anything with it. It's yeah, done. exactly. You can't have it. Yeah. It's so, all done. Rebecca, you are part of the Grief Police, as I am. Um, <laughs> who are we remembering today? Well, um, for me, there there have been a lot of losses um, mm. that a lot of people have experienced. By my, you know, I'm middle aged by my stage of life. So, you know, grandparents, great uncles and aunts, pets, friends, but. Um, 40 years ago, my father was killed when I was six. And then 13 years ago, um, my sister was murdered. So it's it's the both of them and they vie for attention. Yeah. Um, that is huge. I 
I mean, I know there's no hierarchy, but that's big. (laughs) Well, I kind of, I suppose, I suppose one of the things I'm really aware of is that it may be that kind of these losses are cultural as well. In our, we're very lucky to live in a society where a lot of us will, well, at the moment, we'll die in the gentle arms of the NHS. I hope to. I'm not sure that anybody else's children will because of what's happening to it. But that's how a lot of death is encountered and people have long-term illnesses and things like that. But we live in a very weird country at a very specific time in history. Mm. That is not the experience of most people in the world. And there are a lot of conflict zones where, you know, I spent a lot of time in South Africa. I have family there and I've taken a show that I do there. And everybody, really, and I'm not joking, everybody knows somebody really, who has been touched by murder, for example, or by road traffic accidents, which yeah. are both extremely violent. Because there is a big problem. And I'm not, you know, South Africa is a wonderful place. But there are lots of countries like that, and we just don't think about it. And we don't, yeah. obviously, obviously, we don't want to think about it. I don't want to think about it. I like lying, lying on the sofa watching telly, you know. Yeah. But it's funny, isn't it, the perception of other countries, because... Um, um, I have a friend who lives in uh, Mexico, mm-hmm. and um, so sometimes I read stuff and I'm like, oh, "Like, are you okay? What's happening?" And she's like, "You live in London." <laughs> she was like, "We hear about that in Mexico. Like, people worry about London in Mexico." And I was yeah. like, "Oh, oh yeah," because you always think your world is this perfect bubble, like, of like yeah. well, it's fine here, but totally. Well, oh, Mexico's dangerous. Literally, if it's not touching you, yeah, on your street in your home then essentially your day is okay. Yeah. I mean, actually, and you can't, I don't think you can. I mean, I, I do, and I don't think it's done me any good, but I don't think you can live in a place where you're constantly fearing whatever it is. And it, yeah. you know, it engenders enormous anxiety. And as we all know, <laughs> it's not going to stop it happening. No. Worrying no about it won't stop it. So, shall we, <laughs> what, <laughs> where to begin? Where to begin, Rebecca? Um, because I know, so you did a show about your sister. Yes. Um, which is called Sometimes I Laugh. Like my sister. That's right, yeah. Uh, so one woman show, which I have seen. So I, we, so I'm getting my head. We know that story. I know that story. Yeah. So let's start with your dad, maybe. Yeah. What happened with your dad? Because I didn't know that actually till you just said that, I think. Yeah. I'd sort of, because of the show was so much about your sister, I'd yeah. sort of removed that part from my brain. Yeah. So yeah, what happened? Um, yeah, he went out for a bike ride on a beautiful summer's evening. Oh, God. 31st of May, 40 years ago. And in our village, small village in the middle of nowhere in Suffolk, um, he was essentially crushed between two vehicles. And he lived for a few weeks in hospital as they tried to save his life. But he died of his injuries. The worst thing, for the thing that I, you know, hey, this is a fun comedy podcast. The, uh, <laughs> ladies and gentlemen, the, um, the um, thing that's, that, that turns over in my mind is the knowledge that he actually, quite rarely for um, a cycling accident, he didn't have any brain damage. Wow. It was all trauma wounds to yeah. his um, internal organs. So he was himself. They put him into a, into a coma, obviously to try and give his body a chance to yeah. save itself, but he died. And how old were you when that happened? I was six. Oh. It's a very bad age. I mean, it's... There, there isn't a good age. There isn't a good age. No, there isn't a good age. <laughs> but whatever age someone says feels bad. Feels awful. Yeah. I think, because I think what happens, and I watch people do it, we, you know, we either think of ourselves at six, we think of our children at six, we think of somebody we know at six, yeah. it's... Or whatever age it is. I mean, mean, because one of the experiences I think of other people's trauma, which I'm sort of obsessed with and fascinated by, is that mostly what a lot of us will do is we do. We go into ourselves and go, wow. And the way I can, you know, talk to you about your losses is go, what is that like? Or the fact that you're busy or had a difficulty. I'm like, oh, how would that be for me? Which isn't a selfish act. It's an act of empathy. That's kind of what I have to do in order to go, oh, that sounds difficult. Yeah. Well, that's exactly how empathy works. But hmm. I think it's funny because, like, when I say I was 15 and my dad died, people are like, oh, you're so young. And I think, 
Well, well, I mean, I suppose it wasn't that. But, like, you know, yeah, exactly. I was young, but six is young. It's all young. Like, it, yeah. there's no good age. Man, 59 yeah. is young. My mum's parents died when she was 59, and <laughs> that was rubbish as well. Yeah, I mean, exactly, it's... exactly. Yeah, there's... So... How was that dealt with, that grief particularly? Like, was it discussed a lot? Were your family very open about it? Did you sort of share the emotions or was it tidied away? You know, how did your family cope with well, it? Well, my... So there was my mother and her three children then. And my mother is preternaturally competent. She's she's kind of... I love her enormously. But she's also massively irritating, I've come to realise, as an example of a human being. Right, OK. Because An unusual... Yeah, yeah. She's astonishingly well-adjusted. Wow. Um... Which is all very well, Carrie. <laughs> but not all of us got that gene. <laughs> when you end up coming out of a totally other sausage machine, yeah, that's um, shaped like chaos. Uh, I, it, it, so, so she she was very. She talked about dad. Uh, she made a, she made a decision, and she could make this decision because luckily somebody killed my father, and the guy who killed my father, um, who was responsible for his death, his car was insured. He had insurance, so it meant that there was some insurance payout. Yeah. I mean, it's one of the things I'm like. One of my bet noir is. It's a lottery. We were lucky yeah. to be killed by somebody who had insurance. How l- we were. He was lucky to be killed yeah. by... But Dad wasn't lucky. Dad was not lucky. I'm not saying that. But given that he no, died, we, the, yeah. we were lucky that we had that. And Mum made a decision um, that she wanted us to retain whatever we could of our childhood. This having happened to us. So we were 10. Charlie was 10. My older brother, my sister Kate, was 12. or uh, 6. And that's what she wanted for us. And she was very focused on that. And she was a bit, I think she was, you know, I think she would say she was very protective of that. I think sometimes people used to say to her, you do too much, Angela. You should, you know, you should be making them do the washing up and paint Mm. the outside of the house and and quickly nip down a coal mine so that you can put your feet up. And her attitude was, no, they're kids. Yeah. They've already had their childhood taken away. It's been trashed. What can I do to maintain something for them? Which, yeah, I totally understand. Because, Yeah. yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Like when... Again, like we said, grief police, other people's opinions of how children should be dealt with. And it's like, man, you're dealing with, like, your dad was killed. Like, you know. Holidays forever for those children is how I feel. Do you know what I mean? Sweets for dinner and holidays forever. Totally. No homework. But boy, do people have opinions on it. It's absolutely fascinating. And then a household, it was the 1980s, it was Suffolk. So, (laughs) already it sounds Suffolk. It was, I know, I adore (laughs) Suffolk. uh, And I go back a lot. But it, people did have opinions. People literally who would never have given them my mother their opinion when she had a proper owner. Yeah, yeah. Once her owner was gone, <laughs> they could step in and tell her how things should be done. Yeah. And my mother, luckily, I don't know what she's made of. It's it's titanium, but it's slightly more flexible. It's chewing gum and titanium. I presume <laughs> that's something. But she... Chitanium. Yeah, chutanium. <laughs> chutanium. Isn't that mm. a character from Star Wars? <laughs> but um, she... So she she fielded all that stuff. Wow. Um, did you so did you feel not very aware of that? Did you feel like your mum kind of protected you from anyone being annoying or? Oh uh, well, you can't. That, this you is can't, what's fascinating. Yeah. I kind of I kind of have this thing I talk about endlessly if I can grab hold of someone and keep them still long enough, which is about the gaslighting of children. It's it's, it's cultural and it's and this is also in a specific place. People, there's a thing that I would like to chuck out the window for good of children being resilient. Mm. They aren't any more resilient than you are. In fact, they're probably less resilient than you yeah. because they aren't formed yet. But what they do is they will sit and cry on your lap and go, Granny, and where's Granny, and where's Granny? And you're like, well, Granny's, you know, this, whatever your explanation of death is. There is no explanation, but whatever that is. And then they go and play on the floor. Yeah. They stop crying and people go, oh, look, she's fine. No, no, that's the equivalent of you going to the pub 
Yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, that's the equivalent of you watching five episodes of Mad Men. Yeah, without they a break. Ju- and not yeah, going exactly, to <laughs> exactly. But what we observe, because what we want, because we refuse in general to look at a child's pain. We don't want to see it. It's one thing when a child wow. is screaming because they yeah. don't want to wear their Wellington boots. Mm, okay, yeah. And then you can go, oh, Malcolm, he's impossible. He needs to wear his Wellington boots. And it is slightly absurd. Not that it's good to let the child know it's absurd yeah, unless yeah. it's necessary. But, you know. but what we can't bear is looking in the eyes of a child who simply knows more than we do. We find it extremely difficult because it's wrong. It's wrong. Yeah. And they can't articulate stuff necessarily. Adults can't articulate stuff either, good Lord. But children often struggle to articulate stuff. And it is inarticulable. Is that a word? I love the fact it that is that probably now. isn't a word. <laughs> um, that's really interesting because I think, I think that's a really interesting point, this idea that like... Well, they'll be fine. They'll be yeah, okay. They're fine. Look at this. She's smiling. Children oh, she's doing so fine great. at school. They adapt. They All adapt. All of that. A friend of mine, a wonderful friend of mine, a school friend who's now lives in Canada. We met up one summer, and she'd had unfortunately two of her friends had died of breast cancer, and there were some small children in these families. And she was describing this to me, and she said, "Well, this one's fine because they're doing this, that, and the other. They're going to school, and the other one is really acting up and being really difficult. And we're really worried about them." And I said, "I don't know. I ain't no professional, but I think you might have it the wrong way around." Yeah, yeah. <laughs> because the good child who is struggling to make everyone else well around them... Is in so much agony. Yeah, and isn't expressing, and isn't doing what I did after my sister died, which is a year I drank every day after Kate died, every day, not in the mornings. Um, (laughs) I have my standards. (laughs) You know, exactly. Um, But I... I, And people people had an opinion about that. People Mm. had opinions. They told me, and I'm like, wow, that's fascinating that you've got an opinion on that. Tell me again what it was like when your sister died, because I'm going to really find this interesting. Yeah, yeah. It's so extraordinary, and they do it, and they'll, and they, and so I I said to my friend, I said, listen, maybe I think maybe the kid who's behaving themselves might, it might be worth trying to talk to them. It might be worth finding something. And what they don't, what they don't want to do is upset this precious vessel that's doing really well. They're not doing well. They're holding it together like a glass capsule. They might not, but they may well come apart later in life. Well, I always think it's funny, isn't it? Because what, what and I don't mean this negatively at all it's just life what they're seeing is a child getting on with it and there's a relief in that oh mm-hmm. thank god thank god because they're suffering they're in pain they don't totally. know how to help totally. oh she's just getting on with it great great yeah, great I haven't got to manage this or sort it out but this or, one who's screaming and shouting yeah. and it, also the screaming and shouting child is still in pain as well yeah, but yeah, they're exactly, expressing it exactly but I would say I was definitely that child who's like I'm fine well you you, oh, you so, were fine. toboggan-able that's what I call it what? totally toboggan-able yes yeah mm. absolutely like you would have looked and gone yeah she's fine yeah look at that she's doing fine and was it your intention to comfort the people around you I think it must have been deep deep down just like don't cause a fuss because it feels like there's enough fuss already like, yeah. it was a very sort of, I'm quite practical. Mm. And I think I just thought, like, yeah, I, you know, I saw the option. I was 15. I could have gone and get, you know, my friends were going and get very wasted and taking a lot of drugs. And they didn't have dead parents. Yeah, <laughs> you know, yeah. they're being teenagers. I saw that option. I thought, no, that would stress everybody out. Like, don't do that. And I also was scared. There was a mix of, like, also, I don't want to die. <laughs> I'm, now, I'm now terrified of dying. So did, you become, did their death then become something that was very... Far more concrete than it had been yeah, previously. Yeah, definitely. It was yeah. like, well, don't do anything because you're going to die. Everyone's going to die any minute. So and you're going to bring it on. I'll bring it on. So by having like, a weird perno. Yeah, yeah. Like, don't take any drugs. Especially, I, you know, I grew up in that era where like drugs were. Oh yeah. We were completely told all the time, you take one exit, you'll die. So yeah. when my friends were dying, like, you're going to die, you're going to die, you're going to die. But they all were fine. <laughs> Luckily, obviously, some people aren't. Um, but yeah, it was. 
I definitely was that child. And it's interesting. What were you then? Six, do you remember? Were you, it was six too young. Were you kind of someone who was like, I'm fine? I was, I think, I mean, I'd have to put this out here right away, especially for the benefit of my wonderful brother who's still with us and my dead sister who, well, quite frankly, she can go stuff herself. She's not around <laughs> anymore. I can tell what like. I was a very noisy right. show off. Um, <laughs> now, I, you're an actor. I'm an actor. I know what it means to be... A dramatic child. And I know what it means that you already label yourself as a show. I'm with you. Yeah, no, I was. And I and I and I think I'd come into what was quite a decently functioning family right, as the sure. fifth wheel. Yeah. And I think my parents were pleased. I don't know that it was as pleasing for my siblings. Right. Yeah. I think maybe as a baby it was fine, but then I grew up into something awful. And <laughs> was always trying to keep up and talking nonsense and quite charming as a little kid so I think it was yeah. that situation oh isn't she sweet and my brother and sister I think were like no, no she isn't she's just pain in the arse guys nothing <laughs> sweet about this thing um, and I think it belied I know it belied a very sort of uh, jittery terrified human being mm. one of the reasons I'm a performer is I can see, I can conceal virtually anything. I say that. Obviously, someone's going to say to me, "You ain't concealed it from me. I saw it all along." But I can conceal a great deal, and it's why I'm a, it's why I'm an actor. And yeah, I would say, same, same. Really yeah. good at hiding. Yeah, I can hide all sorts of things, yeah. and I can simulate something. I can simulate whatever's necessary. Yes. I would describe myself as manipulative, but I don't use it for evil things. Yes. That's my thing. And I and I kind of I've decided to own the fact that I think I'm manipulative because I because what I and I and, and it's born of this time. So when I think when Dad died. Um, I remember being massively concerned then, but of course about my mother because yeah. I knew what our fate was if Mum died. Yeah, yeah, that's and what I, I had. Like, yeah, one down. We got one and left you're very now. Very close, yeah. and then you know how easily it can happen. Yes, yes, and that's what made me so like jittery and anxious. Yeah. I was like, "Well, they can go. At, these people yeah. are not reliable. Anything can happen. They're I completely thought, unreliable. I thought they were reliable. No, 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 when no. When they no. said to you, "They'd always be there." Now, well, it they was a lie. They fucking lied. Exactly. So now you need to get your shit together because these guys can go at yeah. any time. Yeah. Okay. and you've got to be yeah. ready for it. So, yeah. as small as I was, I was well aware that it was a decade yeah. of at least of being looked after. Something happened to mum, of being looked after by whoever. Now, it happened. To, I knew that we were, we were going to go... Mum was very clear and very open. Wow. I knew we would go to this particular uncle, uncle and aunt of ours, who I love very much, and they're great. And they know I love them, but they will be the first people to understand that I wouldn't have wanted that to happen. You <laughs> yeah, know, I wanted yeah. to be with my mum. So that was terrifying. So I think my major concern in life became making sure my mother was okay. Mm. And... And she and I have talked about this a lot. I'm sort of, I think I became an emotional lightning rod for her. So my mother is a very, ironically, ironically, my mother is a very private person. Yeah. And she, uh, her friend, people, she knows masses of people. She's very popular. God damn her. (laughs) And she will, and she, people will say to me, I'll be in my hometown in Bury St. Evans, beautiful Bury St. Evans. And people say, oh, 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 Rebecca, how's your mum? Because, you know, it can be, um, be a bit difficult to tell. <laughs> and I'm like, yeah, no, it's virtually impossible to tell. Wow. My brother and I know, and I would say her sisters know, but she's very, very, and her close friend, she was a very private person. So, and she struggled. Mm. And, you know, I, I, I remember terrible times of her sort of being de- essentially the desperation of our situation yeah. and her terrible, unimaginable loss. And my knowledge that she, she had to keep going. Yeah, there's no choice. She's got to go to the shops. Three kids as well. You know, it's all of that. And for all that we weren't left in situations that some people I know were financially, and I make no bones about that. I I didn't grow up in a paper bag in the middle of the road. I mean, we didn't go... 
skiing every year. Um, but I <laughs> oh, so hard for you. I know it was extremely difficult. <laughs> I was very angry about it for a long time, but I had some therapy. But um, so you know, I'm, I, I make no pretence about how fortunate we were in our circumstances. But he, so yeah, so I just worked. I worked on. I worked on her mm. too, and and that kind of never has never gone away. She's wow. now seventy eight and forty six, and I and I still, especially then my bloody sister dying my mother's welfare for me is sort of paramount yeah. really partly because I can't bear she's I can't you know, she, she's had this cavalcade of not a few years before my, not long before my sister died her, my mum's best friend her sister died um, uh, she's you know lost all of the people like she would have at her age all her parents and aunts and uncles and you know she oh there was a baby before the three of us my mother and father had a stillborn child wow <laughs> My mother has been... So it's funny, when people say to me, oh, you've been through a lot, I'm like, oh, i got a story for you, girl. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and she's, like, culturally yeah. massively off the scale. So, I'm, I, you know, my, my concern has been for her. And she... Well, I mean, she was extraordinary, really. She talked about anything. You can, I can ask her any question. Um, and she's remarkable and always has been very honest, searingly honest. We talk and discuss anything and everything. There's nothing off limits. That's amazing, though, to have that so valuable. support. Especially when so you valuable. are... Uh, yeah, you know, to be a six-year-old and grow up with yeah. that atmosphere, I think, must totally. be hugely healing in a way, as much yeah. as it can be. No, it absolutely. At the same time, I knew by the time I was 12 that I was in massive trouble psychologically and she wasn't really able to do anything about that because it was mm. 1980s, it was Suffolk. So my appeal to have some kind of therapy, when I asked her to I could have therapy, she was like, I didn't even know we'd heard the word. I presumed you'd heard it on telly. <laughs> And we know what we're going to do in Suffolk in the 1980s. Did you ask when you were 12? Yeah. Did you say, oh, oh because God. I knew I was absolutely as barking as a stack of whatever. And I will use lots of terms like barking and crazy, which I recognise that some people find offensive. But I am <laughs> certified, quite frankly. Yeah. So I will own them. I don't know what other words to use about myself. It is tricky. I know that I've I've encountered that recently of people finding those words difficult. And I'm like the only words I've got like I don't know what else to say and I think barking is a real like I know what you mean yeah barking (laughs) barking is such a good word and it and it isn't what's fascinating to me about mental health it's all very well we have these definitions and diagnoses but it isn't the same as a twisted ankle if you're say massively emotionally unstable yeah what do I say about that that isn't it isn't there isn't a particular thing Um, so there aren't words, as far as I'm yeah, concerned. There, there probably are in the enormous, you know, the enormous book yes. of definitions. But I have not got the time. Wow. I'm a bit dyslexic. I'm not going to sit and read that book <laughs> and try and work out what I am. And then you wouldn't know what it word meant if yeah. I use it. Yeah, exactly. That's the problem, so what's the isn't point? It? The culture thing. So when you were 12, you said you wanted therapy. Mm. And were you close to your sister at that point? Because she's so she's. Six years, six years old than me. She was six years old than you. So were you, did you see your brother and sister dealing with it very differently? or I sort of felt partially, to a certain extent, like an only child in my family in a way. They were very close. Right, and my, they were sort of, yeah, they seemed like... It's a, yeah, they were Charlie was, Charlie's four years older than me, Kate's two years older yeah. than that. They're incredibly close. My sister adored my brother, and my brother adored my sister. I, and still does, I'm sure. It's They were a unit, really, Aww. a very... Self-sufficient, very. Two of them, all well, three of us, are very different. The two of them, so different, but so loving. My sister protected and defended my brother in some extraordinary ways, and Kate just respected everything about him. Really, he's he's an he's an incredible guy, um, and and then there was me, <laughs> and I. Yes, I am incredible, um, and they, we. It was no, there was there was no love lost between us, really. Till my sister went to university and I went to stay with her when I was 14. And 
when I was 14 and she was 20, 21, her friends wanted to know whether I was the younger or the older sister, which when I was 14 and she was 20 was pretty cool. Yeah. By the time we were 28 and 22 and people still thought she was the younger <laughs> sister, we were in Germany on holiday. We said to these people, well, um, they were like, oh, are you twins? No, we're not twins. Uh, so, oh, well, we know that we're sisters. Oh, well, they're six years between us and she's 28. And somebody went, so you're 34. And I was like, okay, forget <laughs> this with my stupid Michael Caine looky-likey face. No offence, Michael. Um, this is that really is annoying. Worst, my sister it? was the pretty one. And um, so I went to university with her and it just flipped. I went to stay with her in Manchester and it flipped a switch. And our relationship that's when my relationship with my sister really kicked in. Yeah, and then you know them, you become knowing them as an adult, I guess. Totally, and we weren't on each other's territory. Yeah, yeah. And we weren't in the... It was just the two of us. Yeah. It wasn't the four of us, which has its own... Although, you know, it's all those politics already established. And it became the kind of relationship that I think a lot of people simply don't experience. If you don't have a sibling, you don't experience it. I mean, I know lots of people who've got siblings. They've still got their really irritating, awful siblings, and I've gone and lost mine, <laughs> bastards. And they're like, oh, I'd be happy without mine and get rid of them quite merrily. Yeah. Um, and it was. It was just this extraordinary, extraordinary, what I would refer to as a love affair. Um, I know in our culture we're obsessed with um, who's doing sex with whom, mm. but I think love is far broader than that yeah um and it was it was just she sustained me i she was the only person i talked to about my my box of frogs in my head i didn't really talk to anybody about it and um and she was very lacking in a belief in herself extraordinarily she went on to achieve extraordinary things but she was very competitive but i could say to her yes you can and i think you can and this is how you can so we had this very symbiotic relationship so that when she went I've, it's taken me years to realise how much of myself was actually Kate. And when she went, she took me with her. And mm. I don't have qualities I used to have. And nobody can nobody can replace it. Frustratingly, and my God, I've looked, but it can't be replaced. And I think the same thing happened to me with Dad. When Dad died, Dad liked me being a show-off. Mm. Dad loved all of that. And my mother and my brother and my... I remember one year, I was with a lovely guy at the time. He came for Easter. It was me and my mum, my brother and my sister at Easter. I went to the sitting room, I put on some music and I was dancing around, just dancing around, 11 o'clock in the morning, Easter Sunday. And they all came in one by one, all four of them, and looked at me. And I stopped. And I guess I was 20-something, 26, 27. And I suddenly realised for the first time, I'm not a cuckoo. I'm my father's daughter. And it took me all that time to realise I wasn't just an aberration, like some hideous aberration in this other family. Not that they didn't love me, not that we didn't get on. We had great times. I was so weird. And I am weird compared to them. I was like, oh, I'm like dad. (laughs) It's funny, isn't it? Yeah, I'm very similar to my dad oh, in that way. Yeah, they definitely. I'm definitely. I mean, my whole life has been called a show off, and it took me years to realise that. And that was a huge part of my creative journey to realise that it was okay to want to be an actor. And yeah. I thought it was the, the worst Absolutely. thing to do. Yeah, totally. You know, you, could, yeah. you should have joined like the, the militia somewhere yeah, where you could be like, a, a gun for hire and kill yeah, people would yeah, be better. Like, yeah, like you want attention, how awful, and then yeah. realising, yeah, quite similar. Like, yeah, my dad was a bit. Of a show of, and mm. similarly, when I met my um, when I met my great aunts, who my grandpa's sisters, that's my my dad's dad's sisters, and I think I'd had so many men in my life who were like that, but no women. So there's big yes. bombastic men, but I didn't know any women. I thought it was sort of shameful to be a woman yeah, and be this be loud. Like... And I met this great aunt, and um, she started telling me this, this the quiet great aunt. Anne, who was lovely, and she was telling me about Great Aunt Kitty, who was the first woman in Bridgend to wear trousers, and, you know, Great wow. Aunt, you know, and then Phyllis, who went to New Zealand, and Mimi, who was an atheist amongst all these... And I was like, 
Oh, there they are. It all makes sense now. Like the power of family. I oh, mean, it's, it's, enor- it's, it's enormous. It's enormous. I remember she just described Kitty and I was like, oh, that sounds like me. Like the bolshiness and the opinionatedness. And I'd always thought, again, you feel like an aberration. Yeah, you feel like, yeah, it's something from, yeah, no, totally. I'm, this is wrong. What I do is yeah. wrong because I can't see anyone yeah. else doing it. Totally. Yeah, it's really powerful, isn't it? And you it? might hit upon a mentor, as they call them, or just a you know, family friend or something who yeah. goes... That's, okay. that's great, Stacati. You're allowed to be whatever it is, but often people don't, and so yeah. I think a lot of young people and you know teenagers and kids really struggle because whatever it is that drives them seems so wrong. Yeah, um, and especially like you said, your dad not being there, like yeah, totally. not having that other character to join in. Absolutely, and, and all like, of that. Yeah. And he was, and also he, my father was an orphan, right? So there's no family. Yeah. My brother is the only person who's the only person who's related to my dad, and my brother and I are really different. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and we we do share things in common, but we, you know, but he's but Charlie is not a show off. Um, and there's nothing wrong with not being a show. No, it's brilliant. It's, oh, I admire it. I wish I could be like him. I look I at these people it. and think, why can't I be like these yeah. people? My mother, who doesn't, she, you know, she's a, she's a she's a Christian. She does. She works so hard. She does much for charity. She will not read in church. Wow, she that's she, to those so that when already as she said that I was like are we are we in church? Does she want me to do it? I'm, I'd love it. I love my own wedding. At my own wedding, there's a Freudian slip. My own a sister's own funeral. I am uh, at my own sister's funeral. There you go. This is terribly Freudian now that I'm uh, free <laughs> freestyling. And I, I did I did at her memorial in Johannesburg and then at her funeral in Bury St Albans. I I spoke. Yeah, and people, are like, how did you do that? I'm like, it's the easiest thing in the world to get up and not cry and to make jokes. Yeah, that's in my those circumstances. Skill. That is the best yeah. moment. Ask me to be quiet. Everything else Ooh. is hell. Yeah. No, exactly. I can't do that. But I it's still, I st- and I think I still experience shame. I'm, I'm yeah. sitting here talking to you about it and, it, and it hasn't gone away. Although I have, because I think oh, it's okay if I put it on stage. Yes, that, that's uh, acceptable place. You for know it. exactly. And I did you outside know, I did, of that. Yeah, it's, it, it's not okay. Yeah. It's okay if I, you know, you're getting married and you want me to read at your wedding. Brilliant. Yeah, I'm like, that's great. Then but everyone loves you. Oh, we'll ask Rebecca to do it. Great. Yeah, it's, oh, you read so well. And then I have to say to people, I'm an actor. I feel real. I feel a cheat. <laughs> yeah, yeah. This get, is like what I do. Get up in a pub and just start doing a reading. You're an asshole. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, or on the tube. Yeah. I just think people really object. And it's hard because I, it wasn't just my, you know, my, I remember my mum, oh, she listens. Sorry, mum, but she would always be like, oh, I felt that from my mum and her side of the family of like, wanting too much showing off was kind of like oh you're showing off you want attention yeah. but it's also school like teachers everything. Wasn't okay the there. whole world was like what are you doing stop asking for attention so you're like yeah you're right sorry what an awful thing to yeah. do so you mentioned your sister's funeral yes what happened to your sister how did your sister die so Kate very jealous of my father wanted <laughs> to have a totally other and more flamboyant death and she achieved it she was a very uh, competitive individual um, she was the senior producer uh, Africa producer for the BBC, which right. meant she was based in Johannesburg. She'd been there a long time. And um, she was asked at very short notice to go to Somalia mm. because somebody had dropped out of a trip to Somalia at the time. Arguably, Somalia was the single most dangerous place in the world. It's particularly dangerous for anybody who wasn't Somali, wasn't local. So when was this? What sort of year This is 2005. Right, OK. Yeah. February 2005. And to cut an agonisingly and horrendously devastatingly long story short... She arrived in Mogadishu and hours after they'd arrived, she was round on the street side of, a, of their parked car and was shot once in the back by a passing uh, gunman. She was taken to a hospital where they attempted to save her life. There's no blood bank in um, in Somalia. It's one of the things I come back to all the time. I'm like, people, I think, don't even realise we have a blood service. We have, the, yeah. we have public hospitals. We are so lucky. 
Luckily, she was in a place with extraordinary trauma surgeons. Like so many places in the world, the trauma surgeons in, in Mogadishu are splendid and yeah. astonishing because that's what they're dealing with a lot of the time. But there is no blood bank and Kate was a very rare blood group. And although many, many Somali people turned up to give blood when they heard, uh, they only got a couple of pints and she died of blood loss. After, oh. Post-operatively, they'd had to take out her, they took out her spleen and she died post-operatively. She never came around. Oh, God. Um, and... Even telling the story, I tell it to people sometimes on how to tell it in a really serious kind of way and like engage their eye yeah, contact yeah. and essentially do what I did as a kid, which was help people through the story of my father having died, have to help people through the story of my sister's yeah. death. And it's off the wall. People sometimes go, oh, God, I saw this on the news. I'm like, oh, God, yes, no, I, yes. I remember it. Some people who are sort of conversant with either African politics or current affairs or whatever, or it's stuck in their mind because yeah. she was white and Western and female. An important death, ladies and gentlemen. <laughs> um, not one of those ordinary deaths of uh, who cares. You know, they had very, very strong sense of this foreigner, this Westerner, this Western blonde. I always say this blonde Western woman was killed, so it was big news. It was all, it was front page news. And also the fact that she was a journalist, was that sort of unusual? Like, because you said Somalia was very dangerous at that time, but yeah. like for a journalist to be killed, was that? Well, I'd love to say it was unusual. It, it isn't, un- I mean... That yes, I mean yes, it is. No, it isn't. I suppose yeah, is the answer. Yeah. More journalists die than we are aware of because, of course, if somebody like this dies, or when, you know, um, Frank Gardner, Gardner wonderfully survived the horrendous attack on him, um, it's all over the news because yeah. we are interested in some. These people are already known to us in a way. Um, but the, the journalists who are most at risk, and I would also include media workers, because mm. you, if you're a stringer or a taxi driver or a translator, you can be in, in incredible risk in country, in your own country, because it can be seen as taking sides. It's very, it's obviously, in different places, it's a very complicated matter. Yeah. So far more people who are from the country they are killed in are killed. The reason someone like Kate or Frank are big news is because they are from another place yeah. in a foreign land. But Mexican journalists mm. die um, a lot. I mean, it's the list, there's... Um, lists are maintained and it's it's horrifying really yeah you read out your show didn't you the, yeah, so just you, a list so there's five yeah. I read at the end of the show every time I do the show I've done the show 111 times now and at the end of every show Martin who's my collaborator although he's mostly there in spirit now because he's uh, never in the UK but he um, we read out a list I read out a list of five journalists who've been killed and I'll never get through them all yeah. I'll never get through them all unless somebody would like to book the show and I'd love to come and do the show and it's really a great show <laughs> um, but I it, you know it's horrendous it's absolutely yeah. horrendous and it's all over the world um, it's rarely say Western Europe or, mm. and it's not North America by I suppose large, that's what I meant by rare like that it's yeah like a BBC journal like it, that yeah. would seem to me who doesn't know about these things it would be a shocking story but you're right the cameramen and the people who are not, everybody else yeah, everybody is not in vision yeah. essentially yeah. and the and what happens is as well uh, say BBC CNN Fox News the large organisations if they go to places well number one they run risk assessments yeah my sister's risk assessment stated she didn't do it because she was sort of just she she went to Somalia because she thought she was going to lose her job right she was told not long before that just literally hours before in a meeting with her manager um, that her contract new contract renewal was in question because her commitment to the job was in doubt. She was adopting a child. She'd, she'd met a guy and she was in the process of adopting his child. So I think there is no doubt that her eye was slightly off the ball at the time. Um, and so she felt she had to go to Somalia in order not to lose her job. And she didn't want to go. And her risk assessment says, it's written by an ex-SAS guy, her risk, risk assessment, and it says it was approaching, um, it's the edges of acceptable risk. 
which for an SAS person is basically like you or me running around waving our pants in the air. I mean, yeah. it's like screaming and yelling, saying, this isn't OK, actually. So when she was killed, the BBC, uh, they were remarkably brilliant and supportive when she died mm. and did all the practical stuff and were incredible. And then directly they realised that we had questions about what had gone on. They shut down and then they started coming for us. It was extremely unpleasant. I'm a massive fan of the BBC. I'll be on the streets to protect and defend the the, the licence fee. But I will never forgive the individuals who bore down on us. Um, so what did they What did they do? They essentially wouldn't answer our questions. They wouldn't answer the coroner's questions. The coroner's had to get, had to get quite aggressive with them. Wow. Um, it was amazing. It was amazing. It was like being in a Kafkaesque situation because <laughs> you're like, but you're the BBC and you're gonna you're busily holding people to account yeah. in radio studios and television studios up and down the land, and, and now that, you're just putting your t-shirt over your face and going na 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 when we ask you a question. And it was that amazing. Was just to get more information about why Kate had gone and what had happened because yeah. I mean, having seen the show, I know you say in the show that you spoke to a journalist who had dealt with Somalia for the past 20 years who said he wouldn't have gone at that time. Oh, totally. I mean, Somali specialists, just, they wouldn't have gone. Um, the morning after the trip, somebody extremely famous was in my city room and he just went, cheap trip. It was a cheap trip. It was two people. You shouldn't send two people who'd never been to Somalia before to somewhere like that. It was an oversight because the management was in a state of chaos. Right. And what the BBC didn't want to admit to, essentially because of their reputation, they didn't want us going after money. Mm. Do I look like a woman who goes after money? I I don't, everybody, I really don't look like I go after money. It's one of my problems. I probably should do a bit more of it. Um, we wanted to protect and defend people we knew who were put under pressure. Journalists yeah. are put under the most extraordinary pressure. And at the moment, I know we live in these interesting times. People talk about fake news. It's a very, It was very, very complicated times for us to think about these things. But I know many, many people with enormous integrity who put themselves in danger. There's a brilliant story by Marie Colvin that I heard. I knew Marie slightly and she was just the most extraordinary person and she is a journalist who uh, ultimately was targeted and killed and um, she was standing outside the Frontline Club one day which is a club in London that a lot of uh, media people belong to because they travel a lot so they can stay there and they can meet up there and she was having a fag <laughs> and someone said to her Marie you should probably give up <laughs> and she said we all know this is not how I'm going to go <laughs> It's just brilliant. Wow. Absolutely that. You know, they're incredible. And yes, there are awful people who are journalists, but... Well, as in any profession. Exactly, but exactly. I think it's, it's interesting, like you said, it's interesting times that it's the first time, especially I in my life, where the art of journalism and the integrity of journalism has suddenly become extremely important. Whereas I grew mm. up with like, yeah, journalists are good and they do the thing, they write yes. the paper. Why yes. do we need to worry about it? And yeah. now it's suddenly like, whoa, that's, that is massively important. And then massively important that they are looked after in the Absolutely, way. because dem democracy does depend upon them. Yeah. I mean, it, it, it's one of the things I say in the show, and I think I'm right. Yeah. Um, <laughs> you know, democracy is dependent upon the free flow of information. Mm. Um, and someone say at the moment for me, in, you know, hot in the news as we record, uh, is uh, Carol Cobwallader with her work on Cambridge Analytica, and she's recently, you know, she, she's been under extraordinarily, yeah. extraordinary pressure without taking any sides in that conversation. I mean, I don't need to have an opinion on the matter to know that she needs to be investigating that, yeah, whatever yeah. she finds, and she should be free to do so. Yeah. But in fact, what happens is that the, the journalists are threatened, and we all say, well, journalists are venal. <laughs> no, I don't say that, but, <laughs> you know, we have this kind of response. So, yeah, and so to me, the, the idea that BBC basically tried to take us down, and yeah. including during Kate's inquest, the barrister came over and said to us, well, in recess, he just went, I just want you to know, if you defame anybody, the BBC will sue you. 
And it was very funny because I just leant back. I was sitting next to my mum. I was between my mother, my sister's fiancé and my mum and my brother obviously was there. And there was this ridiculous big BBC team sitting at the next table. And I just leant back in my chair and went, oh, oh for fuck's sake, you stupid stack of fucking pricks. <laughs> Fuck, if we're going to fame any, we'd have done it already. We're four yeah. years in, you blinding idiots. Go fuck yourselves. I was so angry. It's oh, so I insulting. And they threatened imagine. us. Yeah. They threatened my, you know, pension and mother. I'm like... And my sister's fiance. I just it was it was it was the most unpleasant experience. And wow! But it's I refer to it as corporate clench. You'll see it. The NHS will do it. I love the NHS. Building companies will do it. Organisations do it directly. Something happens if they can't bring you in. Yeah, they will eject you. They brought in Peter Gresto, who was a journalist Kate was with on the day. They brought pre- Peter into the fold, mm. and they thought they could bring us in. And when we said, "But we've got some questions," they rejected us, yeah. and then went hell for leather to make us look like lunatics. I am a lunatic, but not in that way. <laughs> yeah, yeah, but that's beside the point. So, where were you when you found out that Kate had died? Um, I was well. I was. I heard she'd been shot while I was working in a hotel. I used to host these educational conferences because I'm an actor. So I was hosting these educational... <laughs> I have hosted one of those educational conferences there you go, myself, saying, oh, yes. maybe, we should, maybe we should do another series of podcasts, <laughs> yeah, yeah. other jobs. Um, and um, I was in this hotel looking after these teachers and I got a phone call from my mother who was in Kate, in, South, in Johannesburg where Kate lived, uh, staying with Kate, and then Kate had to go off to Somalia. So mum was pretty hacked off because she was on holiday on her own in Johannesburg. And um, uh, she said, Kate's been shot. And I, so I got on with stuff at this point, phoning people. I phoned mm. my brother, phoned my brother, phoned my sister's best friend, um, who was based, happened to be based in Cape Town. He grew up with us, but he lived there. I phoned my sister's best friend at the BBC. Mm. I just started phoning people who I thought should know, uh, you know, family and all of this. And then I, and then they let me work. Then they suggested maybe that my company I work for, we weren't both at the hotel, said, you can go if you like. And I was like, oh yeah, I suppose I could go. Yeah. So I was just like in manic work mode. Yeah. The news we were getting was that she was injured, but she her, her life wasn't in danger. Right. So I didn't think she was going to die. And although I'm acquainted with bizarre and extraordinary um, events uh, already, I was told that and I felt relatively, it then just sort of felt exhilarating. And then I was thinking, okay, so if she ends up with a disability of some kind, maybe she has to use a wheelchair. Um, that's fine. We can live together in London. We can do this. We can do that. What if she gets HIV, if she has a transfusion? That's dealable with these days. That's a far um, better diagnosis than it was 20 years ago. Well, that's okay. That would be livable with. These were the thoughts that were going yeah. through my head because I'm a very uh, positive person. And um, I then got a cab to my old company. I used to be an agent. I was an agent before I became an actor. And um, met my brother there. And then my old boss... Um, Gave, was giving me a lift down the train cross road because I was in a play at the time so he was giving me a lift down to this theatre in Kennington my brother had gone to take some library books back because we were preparing for having to leave the country we thought we were going to have to go to she was going to have to go she was she was still in Mogadishu but she was going to be transferred to Johannesburg or to Nairobi so we were thinking we might have we were going to either fly to Nairobi or fly to Johannesburg and I was on the phone to my mother driving down Nick was driving me down the train cross road and she just made this horrendous noise and I knew Kate was dead and and I, how I, did she find out? So she was on the phone to you. She was on the phone to me, and she was in my sister's bedroom, my sister's house. So my one of my mother's sisters married a South African, so we had family there. By this stage, this aunt of mine, my mum's best friend, was dead, but her, obviously, the family were there with her, my uncle, and he just walked into the room, and she could see from his face. Wow! Because the BBC had turned up, my sister's colleagues, poor sister's colleagues, had turned up, obviously to deliver the news in person. 
And it just having my mother on the other side of the world was just oh, horrendous. Yeah, we horrible. weren't there. At least she did have my uncle. She had my cousins who were just who were great and were close to them. I screamed at Nick. He stopped. I had to like stop in the cent- in central London. It's a very busy place in rush hour. And I ran. I got out of the car. It was February, so it was dark. It was about f- I was probably five or six ish, I should think. And I ran back up the road to the library. And I stood in the doorway, and I could see my brother at the counter uh, doing whatever. And um, and I did. You know, your mind's working very quickly. And I was like, how do I tell Charles Kay is dead? And as we've discussed, I'm a show-off. So I stood in the doorway, a number of metres away from the desk, threw my arms in the air and just yelled at him, she's dead. So everyone looked at me like I was uh, odd. And um, and he came over and we stood under the book detector, detector thing and embraced one another. And we got in the car and we went down to the theatre and I wanted to carry on. I was like, I'm going to do the show then. I'm going to do the show, it doesn't matter. Mm. Kate can't die again. I haven't got to go to Nairobi. I can't fly to South... By this stage, we couldn't fly, so it was too late to get on flights wow. to South... Af- overnight flights to South Africa, which is the fastest and most convenient way of getting to to Johannesburg. And it was too late by this point yeah. to get on flights from, from Gatwick or Heathrow. So we had a night in London then, and we got in the car, and Nick drove us to the theatre, and I was persuaded not to do the play. What was your thought then? Did you just kind of go into automatic of like, yeah, I can do the play? Well, I was like, yeah, I'll just do it. What's it matter? It was sort of like, what on earth does it matter? It's partly shock. You know, there's masses of adrenaline go through your system. Oh, God, yeah. All of that. And I also... And it's this has sort of stayed with me, unfortunately. It's not a very good way to live your life. I'm like, who cares? Mm. What does it matter what I do? I could eat a sandwich or throw myself off a bus or never get up again. They're all equal. Don't make any odds. (laughs) And I have to go, no, no, you have got to eat something. Yeah, that we've talked about that before in the show. That sort of weird, yeah, that weird mental attitude that happens after mm. big grief, where you're like, I don't really think anything matters anymore. Yeah, and it is hard to shift that. And yeah. it is sort of, it's sort of a depression, but not a depression in a way, because it's similar to depression of like, oh, what's the point? But it's like you feel. I always feel like you have such screaming evidence of like, yeah, what's the point? People die. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And you have to kind of convince your that person in your head and be like. There's still a point yeah. to getting up and having a shower and, yeah. you know, smiling and talking. Totally. There is, but there is that definite sort of, I don't know, I feel like it's sort of like chiseled onto a piece of stone in your head, isn't it? Like, yeah. everyone's going to die. No, totally. Well, and that doesn't, and I suppose in a way it's interesting you say it like that, because that, I see, because of, of my life experience, I don't really remember before knowing that death was absolutely sitting right. I often say my death is sitting right next to me now and it's yeah. the only thing I get up for sometimes. It's the knowledge that my death's going to be there. Morning, how are you doing? Nice hat. <laughs> you really could try wearing something other than... You're a goth, never mind. Um, and it's, 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 my, it's my one company. It's the thing that makes life living is the fact that I'll die. Yeah. It's the only way I can get through a day is my knowledge of my own death, which I realise is odd. <laughs> Because people think, go, yeah, what? <laughs> I don't think it's odd. I just think it's different because I think you've had death so close from a very early age, for starters, and then twice, which, you know, is a, lo- is a lot. It's careless. It's careless, as Oscar Wilde would say. Um, but I think if you haven't had that, it's easy to... Because what you know is the truth. Death is there. It is the point of living. We are going to die. So that's why you have to get up and... Mm put on your happy face and jump around and dance when the music's playing because you're going to die but I think if you haven't had it pressed up against your face like that it's very easy to to disassociate yourself from it to make it clean to make it far away and it's not oh that won't happen to me and I'm safe but yeah I think I don't. I, th- I, I think you're right, and I think maybe it's even more than that. For, uh, I don't know. I can't remember how many years now. Forgive me, my dear friend James. 
a number of years ago now, probably more than five. A friend, a school friend of mine I've known since I was eight called me on a Friday night, like 11 o'clock at night. He's like, are you still out? I've got to pass out. I'm out. I've been with clients year round. So we met, I've been doing shows. We met up. He'd been drinking. <laughs> I'd had a beer or two, but he'd been drinking. And he got a black cab to where I live in Brixton and um, to go and have some more drinks. He was like, let's have more drinks. I want to see you. I'll never see you. We got out, we got out the cab. He's a barrister. He's very successful. So he paid for the cab. It was great. <laughs> and uh, we got out of the cab and he put down his bags and he said, Becca, I owe you an apology. And I was like, oh, wow, we're going to be here all night, mate. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I was like, what on earth? Yeah, which of these things are you going to apologise for? And he goes, and his father had recently died. And I knew his father. And he said, he said, I had no idea. At school, I should have known. Mm. I had no idea. And it was a wonderful apology. It was a moment I've been waiting for all my life as horribly. I think of it as people passing into the room that I've spent my whole life in. Yeah. And I'm just sitting there knitting. And they turn up. Yeah. They're in a state of like complete confusion. Their clothes are a mess. They've got lipstick on their forehead. They're holding a bottle of brandy, and they're like, "So and so's dead." And I'm like, "Mm-hmm." Yeah. Come and sit down. Let's get. Well, that's wankered. what we call the club. Like, totally. You're in the club. You just got here really. I feel like we just got here early. Yeah, no, totally. I, I, yeah, no, totally. I just and it's. But what I. But the thing about it for me is, people. I haven't passed through it. Whatever mm. happened to me snapped me. Like my father's death snapped me backwards, and my mother, my sister's death snapped me the other way. Right. I am off the scale. I see people pass through. They go through terrible grief and they reconstruct themselves. And I just sit there knitting like somebody out of a Greek. Do you think out they of a Greek. do? Well, they, yes, because people start having fond memories, Carrie. Do you have fond memories of your father? Mixed. Do you have, but you do have some fond memories. <laughs> I have to dig. I have to dig, definitely. But not because... Through was, the difficult ones. Well, I just... I think it's painful. I think that's what I've done somehow. Yeah. It's painful to remember fond things. So... Oh, that's interesting. It's sort of like... I have to... And then that makes me think, oh, we have a terrible relationship. Like we, it was diff- It was difficult. It was a very cantankerous and tempestuous relationship. Yeah. But um, there was definitely fond things. And I, yeah, since therapy, I've had to be like, oh yeah, that was nice, wasn't it? But I think I'm afraid to look at them. I think that's what, what do you I've think? Done. They, do, you, do you know what you think they might do to you? I think it's painful. I think it's just upset because it's like if I. Oh, now we're going. Now you're going there, Becca. How did you do this? I'm really <laughs> if, um, good at this. Yeah, <laughs> I think if I think too much and. I think for a long time I held on to the, oh, we didn't get on very well and it was difficult. And, you know, that's sort of why, like, I'm fine because we didn't even... It's kind of okay he's dead. It's kind it of difficult. okay, yeah, because, like, it was so complicated. But if I see the other side, the softer side of him, I think I get, like, oh... Like, a bit like you said about you and your sister, like, oh, I might have been really good friends with him by now because we might have got somewhere else because we were quite similar and... There were lots of things I know he would have got about me that like other people don't get. And so, yeah, I think I sort of go, not that room, thanks very much. Yeah. Like It's just a little bit too much. I think it's interesting you say that like people have passed through because having done this show and talked to so many people, I just feel like... Oh, you're changed forever. You, yeah, go out a different, you don't yeah. go out the door you came in. No, yeah. You go that's, out a different door. Different it's not door. Mr. Ben. Yeah, yeah. Uh, <laughs> you go out a different door. Yeah. Um. I, I know what you mean. Of like, I feel like I'm still in the room a little bit. There's a proper kind of that. You know, there are these theories of grieving. Oh yeah, which the well, yeah, I get annoyed. The stages one is absolutely oh, stage. Yeah. Well, no, that goes anger, denial, anger, 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 denial, bargaining, anger, denial, <laughs> yeah. bargaining, anger, denial, yeah, bargaining, denial. anger, denial. Silence. I just five years later, it. anger as <laughs> angry as ever before, out like, of nowhere over a yeah. fork. No, totally. Yeah. So there's that, and there's also there are these things like you'll start having fond memories, mm. um, and. Uh, and, it, and 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 and, a, and a, some form of peace is achieved. And I, you know, yeah, I, I, would... I do feel like that. Actually, I do feel like well, but then I think 
I think every time I think I've got a piece, then two years later I think, oh, I didn't have a piece. <laughs> like, do you know what I mean? It's so you had it. So, you, so, so yeah. So, but then it's. But I suppose I suppose movement maybe then is the thing then that it is yeah, changing. Yeah. I think the ossification. I, I suspect something's ossified inside me, and there ain't no shaking it off. I think yeah. it is the movement that is potentially the thing that is the only. Um, indicator, as with everything else, with heart, you know, any loss, heartbreak, yeah. all the same things. You're like, oh wow, it does still upset me to think about that person, but actually, I haven't thought about them for three weeks. Yes. This ex, yeah. you know, I. That's a great sign, and I think we all. Ex- well, I presume other people experience that. We go, oh god, I feel awful again. I'm going to go for a gin, but that is three whole weeks where I haven't gone for a gin because of that person. Yeah. And this is that progress which only reveals itself like a long walk when you look back. Yes, absolutely. Well, I think, I wonder this is interesting because you lost someone young, that um, I thought I was moving. I would have sworn. If you spoke to me five years ago, I'd have gone, I've moved through it. And I honestly think like the last year, I've really actually started to let go of a lot of stuff. And my big thing, which I've talked about before, is like, I was so afraid to stop being 15 because that's the person he knew. Yeah. And I think if you lose someone young, it's quite tricky to, like people like move forward and you're like, but I only know them as a six-year-old or, you know, 20-year-old. So like, if I lose that, like I found it's like... I remember when getting married, I found that so hard because I was like, if 15-year-old me wouldn't be getting married, yeah. having a baby, 15-year-old me. So there was yeah. a it, little, the 15-year-old me inside being like, stay here because here is where your dad is still alive. Yes, totally. And here is, not even alive, pre-trauma. This yeah, is yeah. where everything was sort of all right. Do you remember that? Stay yeah. there. And having to let go of that person, I found like, and, and my therapist calls this like, just you know those other losses are as painful totally and that well the the, the echoes yeah the, the echoes anything that touches people call it I'm, I'm writing a blog this year because I because of it being the 40th anniversary of my father's death and I don't I'm like what else can I do to try yeah. and make myself less barking so I'm writing this blog and one of the blogs I haven't published yet is called um, Trigger Happy because it wasn't until literally last year sometime I was like Oh, all these things trigger me. It's, mm. oh my God, I'm so with it. I'm so now, guys. <laughs> and I have been uh, for, I don't know, 20, 30 years, 25, 30 years after my father's death, the sight of a grown man with a six-year-old daughter oh, or yeah. more in that part yeah. leveled me. And you're sitting in a pub, you're sitting on a bus, yeah. you're listening to somebody's tedious story about their cancer diagnosis. <laughs> and I see some guy with some kid and I'm like... Yeah, yeah, chemotherapy sounds awful. And I'm just staring at, and I am broken by yeah. that. And that's just one thing. Mm. And it is it is an endless cavalcade. Of th- I just feel like uh, there's a brilliant Fry and Laurie sketch where, where it's a perfume symphony, basically. It's odours. So um, Stephen Fry is, I think it's that way around, is shoving the bottles in Hugh Laurie's face. And he basically falls over at the end. He's had so many smells. And that's what I feel like. I'm like, so many experiences yeah. send me. And I just, and I never spoke about, I didn't speak about it very much. It was happening, it happens all the time. It's happened with, you know, I've had, I've, you know, about, 18,000 of my friends have got married and every one of these 18,000 weddings I sit there and look at their father and them. That's never, it was never going to happen to me. Yeah. It was never going to happen to me. And sure enough, it hasn't and it never will. The, and it's endless. And mm. I and I sort of, and there's nobody else needs to know this. I'm telling you now because here we are. Um, but it, I, I know that feeling. I really and do. All, and it, that to me feels like insanity. Yeah. You know, that I, to me feels like a form of insanity. And that's the thing. I think what I've found lately... 
talking about, I mean, I know everyone says it, but fucking hell, it's right. <laughs> talking about it and realising I'm not the only person who feels uh, like that. Yes, yes, that, yes. Because yes. I, I didn't talk about it for years and years and years. To the point my mum said to me the other day, you weren't very sad after he died. And I was like, <laughs> I, everyone there thought I was go. fine. I was like, my God, how could you think that? Yeah. I was so fine. But like, I think that's really helped me so much to go, oh, everybody feels like, because that's how you feel mm. when someone dies. But because we don't talk about yeah, it yeah, very totally. much. So yeah, the God, the father thing, I realised, literally something happened today and I was like, I'm so bad at talking to middle-aged men who look who have brown hair and brown eyes <laughs> because I feel like, I don't know, I'm like, I get this weird, like, yeah. I don't want to talk to you because you remind me of my dad. So I sort of start acting like a 15-year-old. Yeah. I sort of stop listening and I'm like, yeah, yeah, thinking, oh, this is really annoying. And then I thought, Hang on, Carrie, it's not annoying. He reminds you of his da- your dad, and that's what's happening. You're you're sort of unable to deal with it. Yeah. Oh, uh, yeah. Father of the bride speeches at a wedding. Fuck off. I can't. Fuck it's that, off. My father, <laughs> and any other man in my case, you know, I've been single since 1920, basically. <laughs> no man is ever going to stand up and say, I'm great. Mm. They never have, they never will. But that's slightly unkind to my, my one long term partner I had. He was fabulous, but he was very shy. He was never going to stand up and say anything. He obviously, you know, he loved me, he thought it was fabulous. No one's ever going to do that. Then I say to myself, that's ridiculous. What does it matter? Stop yeah. being absurd. What does it matter? But I think what this is the problem I, I've worked out. It's like you dismiss it. So then you're like, it either has to be awful or fine yeah. rather than, that's what my therapist is trying to work, work with me on, it's okay to feel that pain. And just allow yourself just to feel it. And then if you feel it a little bit, hopefully it doesn't overwhelm you. That's what I used to have. I'd be like, it's fine. Who cares? Stop being an idiot. You're pathetic. Get on with it. Yeah. And now I try and go, yeah, that's it's hard. My dad died, so that's a bit painful. Yeah. And just try and stay there. But it's fucking hard because everything in my body is like, make a joke. Yeah, leave it. Totally. Keep away. moving. Keep moving. Yeah, and like, also for me, and despite the fact that, you know, anyone who listens to this who knows me probably goes, Will you make me feel uncomfortable? <laughs> I have a desire not to make me make people feel uncomfortable in the show that you saw that Martin yes, and I made together. Yeah. Um, it's an amazing show. Amazing. Thank you. Yeah. I'm glad I mentioned the show. Yeah. Uh, thank you very much. I love it. Yeah. I think it's a great show. I'm not going to lie. One of the things Martin and I decided to do was to excise the anger, essentially. There's very little anger in it. I mean, there may be a reading of anger that you feel. I definitely felt... I could see the anger, and I could, but I could see that it would it had been processed. I could un because because that real grief anger is so unpleasant. Oh yeah, and, yeah, and it feels like blame. Yeah, um, yeah. So uh, I had some. <laughs> I went to drama school at thirty, and my sister was killed when I was thirty-two. And I had a great group of friends who essentially dropped me. Not all of them, and some of them come back afterwards and apologised. Actors are not great with the older real emotions. Real emotions. Are we? Well, I think the you're not the first person to say that. On oh this no, show. I'm telling you, it's like, fascinating. Yeah. A couple of you know, genuinely, I had a couple of two close. My two best friends at drama school. One of them was unbelievably brilliant together with another close friend of mine the two of them they're called I'm going to name check them they're called Rachel and Emma and wherever our lives have gone since I I don't think I'd be here without them Mm. my other closest friend who I won't name but he knows who he was was absolutely appalling and decided I have since subsequently decided I'm a terrible person now I may be but I was a terrible person before my sister died yeah and literally one of the things that another of of our close friends said to my friend Rachel we went to drama school together this woman said um, she said you know she she said to me you've got to stop blaming us for your sister's death and I was like I'm I'm not as a guy with a gun it's all very clear that's Mm. all very documented but she felt it because what she couldn't tolerate was my my generalised anger and the other thing that my my best mate the other best mate from drama school said he said to our mutual friend we just want the old Becks back and poor old, poor old, Ra- poor old Rachel went, she just went, she said, she paused and she said, 
She said, who do you think would most like the old Becks yeah. back? This unbelievable... They didn't even... They met my sister. They couldn't tolerate it. Now, I get that, and I'm sure I have not been there for friends of mine who've been traumatised. Yeah. There is absolutely no doubt that oh, I, have I have let yeah, people down, I've left, right and centre, even though I've known what I know. I know. Mm. And a lot of, I, most of that time, I, th- I will have done it unconsciously, actually, yeah. because I'm so aware of this. But I, I'm sure I've been terrible. Mm. If someone came to me and said, you've been terrible, I'd listen. I, that's my thing. I will listen yes, if you want to tell me. Because you have an experience that is yours that I don't understand. And I can't, you know, you and I obviously have got loads of things that are chiming mm. here about having dead dads. Mine's got 1970s sideburns because it's 1978. So, you know, luckily you don't see men like that around. <laughs> oh, phew. Exactly. Really? But, but still, there is a gap between you and me. Mm. of comprehension and understanding however many points we touch on yeah of course of there course. is that these gaps are enormous so you can never experience what's up but what, all you can do is ask the question yeah. this is what's so lovely about doing a podcast about what you're doing it's about asking questions it's and then I, you tell me how you feel and I go okay I'm not going to say no but didn't you experience it like this because I did yeah. or I imagine it would be like that so isn't that how it's for you you know I think with cancer it's fascinating with the diagnosis of cancer you never know how somebody feels no, and it's especially doing the show. It, there's so many, like you said, these points, these crossover points, and then so many not. Yeah, there's so many because everybody's relationship to that person is different. Uh-huh. So your relationship to your <clears throat> relationship to your mother, your father, your brother, your sister, your dog, you know, your grandparents. That's yeah, I can never I experience yeah, totally. and understand that. But yeah, to say, I, oh, that's incredible, isn't it? Like, isn't it amazing? And it was. And it, but what and it I, means is, I what he's saying is I. I can't, I don't want this pain. Yes. I don't want to know this pain exists. Exactly. That's actually what that sentence is. I yes. want the old Bex back who didn't have pain. I don't want to know that that pain exactly. is out there. And I saw my response sort of wanted to be, do you know, I'm really, I mean, I don't know how funny I've been on this podcast, but I am, I'm a, <laughs> listen, I'm a really funny person, right? And um, I'm like, I'm, I'm, yeah, I'm a really funny person. Do you know why I'm so funny? It's because my father died when I was six and I have been tap dancing ever since to make yeah. you feel okay about my loss. Mm. That's what I learned when I was tiny. And then you, and then to have someone say, and it's still not good enough. Yeah. <laughs> That's what I'd hear. I'd be like, oh, and it still, oh, my pain was so, too obvious for you. Exactly. It's absolutely astonishing. So I'm like, now my sister's died. And um, another friend, you know, good egg, it's another conversation. She, she, she approached me to apologise because they finally realised they'd, essentially ostracised me yeah, in this period of time after Katie died it does happen yeah. and she said there'd been this event and she'd been annoyed because I hadn't greeted her when I had arrived that's why all this thing had kicked off it's all very odd and she said um, she said I'm so sorry she said the thing is I and this event had happened like it was the Kate died in February it was the event was in October she said I thought you'd be over it by then she literally said that to me I thought you'd be wow. over it by then so I said um Oh said, my god! I know. I know. Are these people? These are actors. Do you understand what emotion is? Yeah, but what they and they're not talking about this specific person, but in general, what actors often enjoy doing is I, I I refer to it as having a wank. Yeah, they want to they want to be having their emotion like oh I want to try out having an emotion of feeling really distressed at somebody's mm. alcohol problem. What they don't want to live is everybody every day with somebody they love who's mm. killing themselves with alcohol because yeah. that isn't fun. No, that's right? not fun. What's fun is some half hour where you explore your feelings and then you go <laughs> to the pub and talk about your bloody bathroom yeah. decorating. I, that's and that for me and I sound really intolerant is because I am. But I'm like, so she didn't. She said to me, she goes, I thought you'd be over it by then. And I said, you know, you got a sister. She said yes. I said, imagine she died. And then the first Christmas came or the first birthday came, those events. And I watched her before my very eyes. Her face just transformed. And she clearly hadn't, in all the time that she'd been thinking about my situation, which I hope was a lot of the time because I'm very important, it had never crossed her mind to think, if my sister died, how would I feel? And in that moment, she went, I'm so sorry. And I, and I thought, I haven't asked you a complicated question. Yeah. I haven't asked you to do an extraordinary thing. All I've said is, 
think about if you were in my shoes, just briefly, seeing as you have a sister. And she got upset and cried and was apologising. And yeah, I'd be so sad. Oh, right, yeah, now you realise it. And I kind of, and I suppose partly I feel my purpose, there is no purpose to life as far as I'm concerned. There's no meaning, there's no afterlife, there's no God. Um, but <laughs> as I go along, like, that sounds really bleak. No, I, think, I, I don't think, think it's it does. Great. It's liberating in many ways, yeah. But it's about helping each other and that includes you know I'm, I'm genuinely willing to learn things if there's anything you can teach me uh, <laughs> but I think we we obviously I'm always looking for similarities but we both have that thing of like okay this really awful shit thing happened if I can help some way if I can help if somehow my totally. story makes you go to your friend who oh, I don't know yeah. and be nicer to them because totally. you spoke to me about grief Thank the fucking Lord who I'm not sure that is there. Is, is, definitely isn't him <laughs> yeah, if yeah. he's there. No, I, well, I, when I said, when I'm making the show with Martin, the making the show was an extraordinarily difficult and marvellous process. Mm-hmm. I was lucky to meet a wonderful collaborator who I adore. And um, he, I wouldn't have been able to make it without him. And it was a hard, I was hard making the show, but I loved it. And I learnt that I could write and all these things things and and, I, and it proved me as a performer I said to he said what is it you want out of it I said I want one person to come to the show and one of two things they either feel slightly less alienated and alone or weird or messed up or whatever because they go oh, somebody else feels like that or somebody else is even weirder than I am which is that's my main hope or they say to themselves I'm going to call Colin because I haven't known what to say to him since his mother died but now I'm just going to call him and say I don't know what to say to you anyway so the first night we're in uh, Switzerland, because that's where Martin was based. Of course, I premiered a one hour and 40 minutes solo show in English in Switzerland. <laughs> it was terrifying. And this woman came up to me, the first person I spoke to after the show. She said um, that she'd been standing in a queue 30 years ago with her date and a guy had come up and stabbed her oh. companion in the back and he had bled to death on the pavement. Oh, my God. And she said... For 30 years, she thought she was crazy for everything she'd done afterwards, but now she'd seen my show, our show, should I say, she realised she wasn't, it was just what people do. And I, I mean, that's the, only, that's the second time I've welled up in this whole conversation. The first time I was talking about dads and daughters, but that for me was one of the single most moving moments in my life because my life makes no sense to me mm. and my life is pointless. And to give somebody I'd never met, a woman, I don't know, I guess Leslie was in her 50s. She went on to book the show fabulously, book the show. She went on to book the show and we got to know her well. So I heard more about the story. But for 30 years, she'd been alone in that. And and the show, we have always, there's been a handful of times that we haven't gone for a drink afterwards with the audience or talk to people. I mean, you saw people come and talk to me, people who know me, but people who don't know me. And we talk and all I do is say, I'm so sorry, you sound normal. (laughs) <laughs> I wouldn't have a t-shirt that says I'm so sorry you sound normal because there isn't anything abnormal there no. is no abnormal reaction and I say that because I feel really abnormal in my reaction to my father's death and my inability to function but there isn't an abnormal reaction therapists and theory will tell you about processes of grieving and blah blah blah, blah, blah. it is beyond our understanding mm, Yeah, and you go on the journey that you go on and you will find that you will or you will not have people who support you and help you and if you are lucky to have those people I think it's my experience it will be easier but it won't be okay and if you don't have people around you it'll be that much harder and 
so to have made something where people and I mean I've got I can't tell you I've got stories coming out of my ears the things people yeah. have told me yeah same oh. same like since it's doing amazing, this show the oh. emails the incredible emails and that's the reason I keep I mean, one of the reasons I yeah. keep doing this show when it's hard and I think you must have this. I don't want to talk about it anymore. Yeah. I'm sad today. And you read an email and someone goes, I thought I was crazy. I didn't know that it was grief. I, yeah. And, you and think, it can go on, yeah. Yeah, and you just think, fuck, like it's yeah. just, we're all just trying to figure out what yes. to do when someone isn't here totally. anymore. And because people don't talk about it and because it isn't a suitable dinner party conversation, yeah. it is for me, but it isn't for other yeah. people. People can feel, I mean, this is what I said earlier about gaslighting children. We gaslight children by implying they should be fine. Yeah. So I don't... Dis- people will often maintain their demeanour for their kids as if they're well. So the kid gets confused because they're like, well, I should be fine. Mum's mm. fine. Why am I unhappy? The kid gets confused and we are doing it in a way to each other all the time culturally. Yeah. And I'm aware that I do because I get up on stage and people will say to me, it's great that you know you're kind of over your sister's murder. And I'm like, okay, I don't know where to start with that. I'm yeah. performing. I'm yeah. doing a crafted show. If you're going to see me grieving, that's me sitting on the stairs drinking gin. You know, yeah, that's, yeah. that's a different thing entirely. I'm doing a show. I'm presenting a thing. I would never want people to think, but inevitably they do, which is partly why I'm blogging yeah. and I'm meant to be writing a book. Um, uh, is that... Yeah, as if it can be... the chaos. Yeah. It isn't okay. All you do is have... It's a bit like seeing, you know, images of people on the catwalk uh, or at, uh, at functions in, in magazines. Yes, they do look great. They look amazing. They've probably been photoshopped, even if they haven't, their makeup's good, their clothes fit, mm. all of that. That's not how they function most of the time. They don't yeah. look like that Yeah. when they're trying to get something down from the high shelf <laughs> in the bathroom. That's not how they dress. And it's the same thing. So the, And while I think people should be allowed not to talk about their trauma and not to talk about their issues, and I think that's entirely acceptable because I will talk about mine, don't worry, I'll fill in the space. And... <laughs> um, People should be allowed to, and there is no inappropriate place, with the possible exception of you coming up to me at my mother's funeral and saying, you know, my dad died when I was 15. I'm so upset. Apart from that, apart from that, there isn't an inappropriate place. And on that note, (laughs) Rebecca, thank you so much for going to talk to me about Les and Kate. Thank you for having me on. You can follow Rebecca on Twitter at Rebecca Payton and she will let you know if she's doing her incredible show again plus her other new work so do follow her there. You can follow us on Twitter and Instagram at The Griefcast and you can email us thegriefcast at gmail.com. Music was provided by the Glue Ensemble and the show was edited by Kate Holland with thanks to Whistledown Studios. And remember, you are not alone. deserves the best and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.